open up to 2 Thessalonians, the book of 2 Thessalonians. That's what we're studying right now. We're in this series entitled Eternal Encouragement, and we're actually going to be looking at the passage that this name for the series is derived from. Now, let me give you a little bit of background because some of you are visiting with us this Sunday. By the way, you can raise your hand if you need a Bible as we open up to 2 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 2. Now, some of you, uh, yeah, are visiting this weekend. Some of you are at the beach. Not many of you. We had about 250 down at the beach. I just have to say, some of you may have doubted the conditions of a late October beach service. You should not have doubted. That was the most glorious weather I think I've ever experienced down on the beach. So don't doubt us. Just show up and realize any, anyway that maybe 250 show up. 100 of you probably heard the message because uh, the amount of noise and distractions. Uh, it is on the podcast. We don't have the video, but it is on the podcast. If you're curious what you didn't hear if you were down there. Um, but for those of you who didn't hear or weren't there, uh, you know, last week we're down on the beach, perfect setting to talk about the Antichrist and the end times. That's exactly what we did. Had some chicken and talked about the end of all things. And, and really that's Paul's underlying motive in writing this letter to the Thessalonian church, that there was these rumors that had been kicked up from within the church community, fracturing the community from within, that, that Jesus had already returned. The day of the Lord had already occurred in some way. That was the rumor that was being spread around. So Paul wrote to do two things, as we looked at in the last week's message. Number one, to tell them not to be alarmed or disturbed by any teachings regarding the day of the Lord. You know, there are these people making these predictions saying it's, ha it's already happened. It's going to happen. You guys are missing out on it. That's going to happen in every single generation. And it has happened in every single generation. So I still see it today. It's still relevant. That one of the things that disturbs and trips up Christians more than anything are these conversations around Jesus' second coming. So he says, don't be alarmed. Don't be disturbed. And number two, be on guard. Because in every generation that's awaiting the return of Christ... This power of lawlessness is at work. There are antichrist-type figures on the way to the revealing of the antichrist that are going to work from within the church to deceive God's people and lead them into wickedness and sin. That's going to be true in every single generation. So beware. There are going to be people coming from within the church that look to lead you and influence you towards sin and wickedness. So it was a decidedly negative tone that Paul finished on, and, and we're going to change that tone as he turns to verse 13 here in chapter 2. It's a change of mood because Paul is thinking better of the faithful who are going to resist the deceptions within the church, and he's going to speak life over them and, and the grounding that they have to stand firm against those deceptions here in verse 13. Let's read. It's going to be on the screens, chapter 2. Paul writes, but we ought always to thank God for you. That's the change in tone. We're thinking of you now, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. And hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, would he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. 
Let's pause there with that blessing to the Thessalonians this morning. As I said, Paul, in the earlier part of this chapter, was, you know, peering through the looking glass into the future. And this is what I taught on last week. And though he's talking about, like, the great victory that Jesus is going to have over evil, he also talked a lot about evil. He said there is going to be this Antichrist figure. He said there's going to be this great rebellion where the Antichrist leads all of these individuals who are formerly putting their faith and trust in Jesus away from Jesus. They're going to be moving away from him and indulging in wickedness and sin. And and, and really the last thought in verse 12 is, look, those folks who are deceived and led away by the Antichrist, they're going to face judgment and be condemned alongside him in the end. So it's a decidedly negative tone in verse 12. And I know that Paul's thinking about his audience. They're going to be wondering in insecurity, is that us? You know, and kind of that fearful posture. You know, there there have been times in my life where a vision was cast before me and and I thought like I was going to be the negative recipient of it. I, I remember one time I was given this gift of stock car racing for Christmas. And so we were driving to the Inland Empire. There's a speedway out there. And, uh, you know, I had never desired to do stock car racing. I don't feel like that's in my blood. That's not in my background. I don't want to crawl through the window of a car to get into it. And then they attach the wheel. I don't want a car with a detachable wheel that goes over 100 miles per hour. It's intended to go over 100 miles per hour. So they give you this like training, right? And it's not a training. You're sitting in a seat and they're like scaring you for 10 minutes before you get into that vehicle. And they're basically saying, look, these cars are worth 50000 up to $100,000. They're, they're made for this specific thing. And, and if you crash into a wall at 100 miles per hour, you could harm yourself and you'll owe us money for the car. That's, that's the training. It's insurance sales. Because at the end, they ask for 100 bucks or whatever so that you can buy their insurance, which makes your gift not a gift because now I'm paying to have this experience I didn't ask for. That's beside the point. But even when you pay for insurance, it's $2,000 of a deductible, which at that point we did not have in the bank account. So anyway, I get out of the training and with that decidedly negative tone being the final words, like I'm thinking that's going to be me. I'm going to drive five miles per hour around this track for... 30 minutes, that's what this gift is. So they're thinking, like, is this me? And, and Paul changes the tone. In verse 13, he's saying, yeah, these horrible things are going to happen in the day of the Lord, that rebellion that I talked about. But that is not your future. That is not what's going to occur for you. He says, we're thanking God for you because God loves you and chose you to be part of the first fruits of salvation. The word salvation meaning to rescue, to preserve, to protect. Like God has you. You're secure. You're loved. You're on a different path than the path that I just laid out earlier. You have a future that God has designed specifically for you, and it's a future of salvation. Now, some people struggle with this concept and the language that Paul uses here in verse 13. They think, well, if God chose me for faith and belief for heaven, does that mean that there's a whole group of people, those who don't believe, that God simply didn't choose? But that's not the way the relationship is conveyed, even in the last passage I taught on last week. There's a group of people that Paul speaks of who are said to refuse to love the truth and so are deceived and led away into the wickedness that they desired. 
And then after they were led away into what they really wanted when they refused to love the truth, it says that God sent them a spirit of delusion to sort of seal their fate. But it was God sealing something that they had already decided to do, which is reject the truth. And again and again, you'll see in the scriptures that the responsibility for unbelief and the rejection of God is always placed on the one who chooses not to receive his invitation, the one who chooses not to believe in him. So does that negate God choosing us in those of us who have faith in him? Well, let me put it to you in the context of a parable that Jesus teaches. There's a story that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 22. It's a story of salvation. It's this king who has a son who's going to be married, and so he's throwing a banquet for his son. And he's got a guest list. He's got all these people he wants to invite into the banquet, the banquet being heaven, the kingdom of God. And on that first guest list is a group of people who reject the invitation. They've got other things going on, or they just outright are against the king and his son. So they don't go into the banquet. And that's to symbolize the Jews, who are the chosen people of God. They receive the first covenant and spiritual relationship with God. And these are the people that Jesus spent the bulk of his ministry speaking to the kingdom of God about. You know, he was engaging them with these teachings. So he went out to that invite list, and he was largely, in his ministry, rejected by them. So in the story, the king calls the servants in and says, well, I want you to go out into the streets. And I want you to invite in everyone, good as well as bad. Everyone. It doesn't matter who they are. I want to make sure my banquet hall is filled to the brim with people. And this is the good news, that God wants to fill heaven with people, people who are undeserving of it. And he comes to all of us with the invitation for that forgiveness and that grace to join with him in relationship and so receive a resurrection alongside Jesus and inherit his kingdom forevermore. And God extended that invite to all of us, but he extended it to me personally. And I have personally received that invite. And that personal invitation is also being extended to all of you by his Holy Spirit. Now, people will doubt it, and they'll say, well, how would God choose me and invite me specifically? Who am I to God? Well, if you believe that God can speak all of the expanse of the universe into existence, you think God can't know you? You think he doesn't understand who you are? That he can't personalize this invite to you? God knows more about you than you know about him, and likely more than you know about yourself. It's very awkward sometimes when I'm in public and I run into somebody who's a part of the branches community, and they say, hey, I'm a part of the branches community. And so, you know, just naturally, you know, this is what you do. in I, I introduce myself. I say, well, good to meet you. I'm Andrew. And they say, yeah, I know. <laughs> Duh. I just told you. I go to the branches community. I recognized you. I know all about you. I know about your marriage history with your wife. I know how you met. I know, you know, where you went to school. I know what you think about running because you talk about it too much. You know, they go through the whole thing and I, and I, and I don't know anything about them, but they start the relationship knowing a ton about me. And, and, and that's the dynamic that we have with God. You know, when he invites you into his kingdom, when he chooses you, he's saying, look, I already know all about you. The same way I'm honest, I can share about things in my life, and my life is kind of open before you. It's on a whole nother level. Your life is open before the Lord, and you may not know anything about him, but he has invited you into relationship and into heaven. 
Now, the Thessalonians, for their part, had accepted the invitation. And Paul claims that they now have received the gift of salvation imparted to them. And he unpacks really quickly what that salvation includes. What does it entail? Paul says in verses 13 and 14, you are saved, preserved, protected, rescued by the sanctifying work of the Spirit through belief in the truth so that you may share in the glory of Christ. That's my paraphrase. Now, many of us understand the second component that Paul lists there that goes along with salvation, that belief in the truth, right? Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you are saved. There's that affirmation of truth, trust in the truth of what God has done, of what Jesus has done, and there's that confession that accompanies it. But Paul makes it clear that salvation and securing and protection It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing experience empowered by the Holy Spirit as we continue to be preserved and protected by the Lord, as we continue to trust in Him, as we are transformed by Him into the image of Christ. Someone who just at one point claims belief in Jesus, makes that confession, but doesn't continue on in the work of the Holy Spirit. That's like somebody who walks one mile of a 10,000-mile journey. That's like somebody who says, yeah, I've received the invitation to the great banquet, but they never enter into the banquet hall. Our salvation is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing work of God until the day that we share in his glory. And that's the third component of salvation that Paul speaks of, the glory we'll share with Christ one day. Now, what is glory? Glory is a Christian word that we use a lot that we're not quite sure of the meaning of, Right? It's in all the songs. It's something that we can cite. We rehearse. We repeat. But what is glory? The Hebrew word, it literally means weight. It's something that conveys weightiness, like like that heaviness upon your shoulders and upon your soul. And the Bible speaks of God's glory as his manifest inherent nature. That is his essential manifest quality is his glory. Now, this is a quality. This is an attribute. It's not a thing, so it's hard to describe. It's like the difference between describing luminance versus a chair. I can describe a chair. A chair, that chair has four legs. It has a back. You know, luminance, well, you know, let me scratch my head for a second here. How can I convey this? Like, it's hard to convey a quality, but we can describe it based on the effect that it has upon someone who experiences it. It's like you can't see the wind but you can understand it by the effect it's having on the way that it sways the trees, right? So what does glory produce in us? Well, it's that awe-inducing quality. When we experience something, you know, that we're just stopped in our tracks, right? It makes the jaw drop. You know, it's simultaneously like all-consuming and hollowing, You know, it empties you of you, but it fills you with this sense of like something bigger than yourself, right? Glory reflected in creation, it leads us to a place of worship very naturally. Even people who don't believe in God, don't believe in Jesus, they encounter God's glory reflected in his creation. And they're led right up to the the precipice of worship, right? All the ingredients are there, except they choose not to give God honor for those things. But you guys have been led away into that before, right? I mean, it says in the scriptures that the heavens declare the glory of God, the weight of God. So you get away from the city lights. You go somewhere you can actually see stars again. 
And you can see the edge of the Milky Way, and it's just like, oh, you're emptied of yourself, and you're just filled with this weight, right? You go through the tunnel on the way to Yosemite, that one tunnel, and then there's El Capitan, and it looks like a painting. It's not even real. It's whoa. If you've never been, you can leave now. You'll be back before tomorrow. You know, you could do it. It is something you have to see, the things that God has created in this world that will lead you to a place of worship. And so Paul says, look, those are just tastes. Those are little appetizers. When this is God's manifest essential nature, you are going to experience something in heaven that is unlike anything else in the human experience. That weight, that awe that leads to... Some of you go, I don't want to sing for all of eternity in a constant worship. You don't understand. It's not a have to. The sort of worship, and I don't know that it's all going to be one giant song, but I'm saying if it is, it'll make sense. Because that's the kind of experience that we're getting brought into. We're going to share in. You know, the scriptures talk about when we enter into the fullness of Christ in the kingdom of heaven, like we're going to be transformed to reflect his glory. So his glory is going to shine upon us, that weight, that awe, that worship. It's going to be reflected back to us. We're going to reflect it back to him. It's sort of like you ever been in a dressing room where you look in the mirror and there's a mirror and a mirror and it's like infinite mirrors and you see yourself on into eternity. It blows your mind. Blew my mind, apparently. Not everybody else. Like that is the sort of sharing in glory that Paul is conveying to believers. Now, stepping back, because we went really, you know, deep into that tangent, why is Paul spending some time both affirming that God has chosen these individuals for salvation as well as unpacking what that salvation entails? Why is he spending so much time on doing the very thing that I've done this morning, talking about God's choosing for salvation for these individuals and what that salvation entails? Well, because these are the very things the members of their own community we're calling into doubt. Because if you think about this, their messaging is, the Lord has already returned and you missed out on it. What's the implication for all those who missed out on it from among the Thessalonian church? Well, God didn't choose me and God doesn't love me and I am not secure or saved and I don't have the Holy Spirit And I haven't been believing the truth, and I have missed out on the glory. If there were invites being given out to this heavenly banquet, I guess I didn't get one. The party went on without me. That's the doubt that believers were casting upon each other. And sadly, looking at the witness of the New Testament, the Bible, it seems that nobody is more effective at making Christians insecure about their standing with Christ than Christians. Isn't that true? Nobody is better at making Christians feel insecure about their relationship with Christ than Christians. It's a sad fact. It's a sad fact. If you look at the book of Galatians, Christians were telling Christians, you guys don't have the right religious practices. You're not in. If you look at the book of Corinthians, well, you guys aren't following the better spiritual leaders. You're not really in. In the letters of John, Oh, you guys have the Holy Spirit, but you got a lesser version of the Holy Spirit. There's another level of anointing and enlightening that you don't have access to. And the book of Thessalonians. Oh, the day of the Lord, you don't know enough about the day of the Lord, and so you are excluded. Sometimes it's us more than anyone else that excludes each other from salvation. 
we take someone who's secure in God and make them insecure. So I just want to take a moment this morning and say, if you believe in Jesus and you've confessed him as Lord and you are walking in his will and ways evermore, every day, that's your desire, then you are chosen by God. Then you are loved by him. Then you are protected and you are secured for salvation. You have received the one Holy Spirit. You have believed the truth and you will share in the glory of Christ's resurrection and his eternal kingdom. Let no one disturb you. Yeah, amen. It's okay to celebrate that. Because we need to be better at telling each other that constantly and letting no one disturb us from that fixed, strong ground that God has given us. The gospel writers and Jesus himself, they go to great lengths to make undivided and whole and equal the people of God that nothing would separate them. Yes, guys, as followers of Jesus, some of us are going to be further along the way than others. Some of us are going to be more mature than others. But there's no first class and second class. We're all riding coach together. <laughs> Literally, that's what it feels like sometimes in this world. Can, can we be honest with each other? This isn't heaven. Flying coach is not heaven. <laughs> Flying at all for me is not heaven. But I'm just trying to say no first and second class in the kingdom of God. If you've trusted in Jesus, we're all riding through this experience in the world together until we land in paradise together. Now, how can we keep this in mind? How can we know the love God has for us, the security of our salvation? How can we remind each other of what is most true, the glory that awaits us? Paul says in verse 15, stand firm then, hold fast. Stand firm in what and where? Hold fast to what? You know, there are some times I've been on shaky ground, and the world will put you on shaky ground, and there was some things going on in the Thessalonian church. Everything got shaky. A lot of times when I'm most unstable, it's because I'm reaching for something in the garage, and I haven't gotten the appropriate apparatus to climb. I've usually selected something like a cardboard box to stand on top of. Anyone ever done this? This genius move. I've done it multiple times. It's failed me every time. Full confession here. But I look at the cardboard box, and I, you know, I think really smart about it. I'm an engineer here in my own mind. If I stand on the edges, well, that's the most upright part. You know, I'm not going to stand in the middle like a dummy. I'm going to stand on the edges, the corners even, right? And if I don't move and I hold my posture just right, it will, you know, I tested it out for a half second, it worked. But then you go reaching for that thing that you couldn't get to, you're off balance, the whole thing collapses. When it begins to collapse, and I've been in this situation many times, do you grab just something off the shelf to hold on to? The WD-40, like, oh, that'll hold me, ah, you know. That's gonna go flying at the same time you go flying. No, I grab onto the shelf that I anchored into the wall that's now anchored through the studs into the concrete, into the foundation, so that I can remain secure hanging there with the box broken beneath me. But that's essentially what Paul is saying here. Guys, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings that I gave to you by word and by letter. The Bible. The Bible is the collection of those teachings by word and by those letters. Now, earlier he said, don't listen to anybody who's coming to you claiming 
a word that I gave them by word of mouth or a letter that's come from me or a prophecy or some special revelation of God that's supposedly from him. Don't believe any of that if it conflicts with what? What I already told you. What has already been written down. So that meant the Thessalonians had to remember what he'd written down and remember what he had told them to be able to discern, well, is this new thing we're hearing right or is it wrong? And if they forgot what Paul had said, they'd be in trouble and they might accept some things that were false. And that's exactly what happened. Chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says to them, don't you remember? Don't you remember what I told you before so you wouldn't accept something false like this coming at you? And the implication was that they had forgotten. But that's why it's so vital for us to know the Bible for ourselves. You know, Jesus has this way of saying it. He goes, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. They won't listen to the voice of anyone else. When I speak, they follow me. But when a stranger speaks, they won't follow the voice of a stranger because they know it's not me. So we have to know the truth. We have to know the voice of Jesus. We have to know the Bible for ourselves so that when we hear something and it's called in a question, the red flags go up and we say, well, that's not Jesus. Well, that doesn't sound like it's from the Bible. And we go back and we check it and we see if it is the truth. It's like a singer or a musician who has trained their ear so that when they hear a note, they hear, oh, you know, they go, that's an A. That's a C. Oh, that's a G. That's nothing, okay? I get it. I, I'm not trying to actually perform. I don't know what any of those notes were or if they could be classified as notes. I'm going to admit that. But like we all know, those singers or musicians that, you know, whatever the note is, they know what it is. And they can listen to a song and then they can go repeat it on their own instrument. It's because their ear is so attuned. My ear is not that well attuned when it comes to music. But we need those ears. We need that perception with God's word. You and I simply cannot discern right from wrong without knowing God's word and hearing God's word. And that's why for 11 plus years that we've existed as a community, there's not a single Sunday that anyone's come up here to teach and it hasn't been the word of God that's the focus. You know, because it doesn't matter if I come up here and I spin a lot of beautiful thoughts together and you know, it's very engaging and it's very funny, whatever else. If the grounding isn't in the word of God, that's not necessarily truth that anyone's going to be hearing. So we need to gather together, remember it, re-remember it together. Not every message is going to blow our minds with something new. We don't always need that. Sometimes we just need to re-remember what the world threatens to help us forget. But it's for you and I to go beyond Sundays as well, or when I say something, to go back and check my work for yourself. I dare you. I challenge you. Please, check my work. Sometimes when I'm preaching, I give people heartburn. I hear about it from time to time. I know it happens much more than I hear about it. God bless you for pausing before writing your email. Others of you, I'm glad you write your email instead of just running out of here angry. You know, we can dialogue about stuff, but the truth is I'm going to cause heartburn sometimes. And you got to be able to go back and say, well, I don't know about that. Let me go back into the word of God. And when you go into the word and you check my work and it coheres with what's in here and you still got heartburn. Now you got, uh, you got business to take care of between you and God, not me because it's here. But that's not to say all the time that you have heartburn, all the time you feel different, I'm right and you're wrong. No. You know, I scrutinize myself. I scrutinize and scrutinize myself. I would never in a million years want to say anything that conflicts with what's in here, but I am not infallible. I am not right all the time. 
Never hold fast to a man. That's the point I'm trying to say. Never hold fast to me. Never hold fast to a man. You know, never stand firm in a church. You know, the, the branches church, that's where I'm standing firm. Or this church over here, that's where I stand firm. Stand firm in the word of God. Hold fast to the person of Jesus and his spirit. Fix yourself, your loyalty, your love on Jesus, not on me or on anybody else. Like Paul said, I say to you, I promised you to one husband. That's what he said to the Corinthian church. I promised you to one husband and it's Jesus. You know, I don't have a social media account and I'm not applying. I never have in 11 plus years for a a bigger gig somewhere else because there's nothing special about me that should promote a special following. I exist to lift up the name of Jesus, to extend the invitation of Jesus, to bring glory and honor to Jesus through this fellowship. Praise him because it's his invitation to you. It's he who died for you. It's he who chose you. It's he who makes you secure and preserved. It's he who's filled you with his Holy Spirit. It's his glory that you get to share in till the end of time. To him be the glory and honor and praise, right? Amen. And it's from him always that your strongest encouragement and strength will always be derived, not through anybody else directly from him to you. That's where your strongest encouragement and strength can be derived. That's how Paul finishes here, his final blessing. He says, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us eternal encouragement and good hope, that God, that Lord, would he encourage your hearts so that you can continue on in this life of good that you're living for him. The Thessalonians, they needed that prayer because they were getting persecuted outside the church, and they were fracturing from within. The world was hating on them for their beliefs, and within their own community, they were being made to feel insecure by their brothers and sisters that they were kind of missing out on the whole Christ thing. So Paul says, well, cut out the in-between, man. You know, you guys need an eternal encouragement, a source of strength that is inexhaustible, and it's what has been gifted to you in Jesus Christ. And we need that same blessing today because we will all hit our limits as human beings. We're very limited. We'll hit our limits in terms of the amount of grief and suffering that we can encounter in this world. We'll just hit our end. We'll hit our limits when it comes to the amount of energy that we have to give to all the tasks in front of us. We'll hit our limits when we're trying to work out a relationship in marriage. We'll hit our limits when we're trying to overcome an addiction when we're trying to defeat the pain of loneliness that's going on in our life. We'll always get brought to those places of our own limits. And we need to attach ourselves to that which is limitless. And that's what Paul prays for, that those believers would attach themselves to God who has an encouragement and a strength for the believers that is without beginning or end. It goes on forever to enable them to do what they could not do in themselves until they experience the fullness of God's glory in heaven forevermore. So let me finish with these three encouragements for you as we look back on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And and this, I, I put it in the form of a prayer because Paul finishes with a prayer, so this is my prayer for us. Number one, let us be a church that brings security to the saved. The very meaning behind salvation, to preserve and protect, to secure, 
I don't want to promote insecurity among the saved. I want to promote security among the saved. Who are we to make insecure someone God has secured? And yet we get into all these differences and debates. Oh, this is what I think about the Holy Spirit. This is what I think about the day of the Lord. And it trips people up. May this be a community. Sure, we feel differently about things, but we never call into question the security of people's salvation in Jesus. Number two, let us be a church that stands firm and holds fast to the truth. I want to be like a choir director where, you know, I'm helping to facilitate all of us knowing those notes by heart. Where all of our ears, every single one of us has an ear for what the truth is, and we can discern it for ourselves. The difference between a good sermon we're going to say together and a bad sermon is not how funny it is or how long or short it is, we're praying sometimes, or how intelligent or novel it is, but is it true? We're the whole community. That's our prayer. We're just going, man, we just want it to be true. And if it's true, that's good because it's holding fast and it's standing firm on what's of God. And number three, this is a prayer. Let us be a church that derives our strength from God himself. Namesake passage, anything done apart from Jesus will perish. Anything done with Jesus will bear fruit. It's promised to bear fruit if we're operating in the strength of God. You know, you can ask God, God, do you have the strength to sustain me at any point in your prayer life? In your prayer life, it's okay to say, God, I don't have the strength to sustain in this situation. That is totally within bounds. But then the next question is, God, do you have the strength to sustain me? And the answer to that prayer is always going to be yes. Yes. I will give you the eternal encouragement that you require, the strength that you require from my lips to your heart. No go-betweens. It's always available when you hit your limits. Let us be the church that doesn't operate out of our own limitations, but operates in that encouragement. Amen. Can you pray that along with me? Yes. It's okay. I always say. We're always mourning all these negative things in society. I think it's okay to come together and celebrate some good. I know that we're past time. And if you need to go and you get your kids and you've got plans for the day, I want to just free you to do that. I want to pray over those who are remaining. And and we're going to sing a song of God's victory. So if you want to stay for that, Please stay with us, but let me just begin to pray. Heavenly Father, would you bring about what we see in the ministry of Paul, which is really the ministry of your Holy Spirit through Paul, that he took these believers that felt like they were on shaky ground. They felt so insecure in their standing with you, God. And Paul was this agent of security and salvation. He was saying, no, no, don't let anyone call into question what God has for you. You've you've trusted in Jesus. You've trusted in the truth then. And you've repented of your old life. You're walking with him. You're filled with the Holy Spirit then. That means you're chosen. That means you're loved. That means there's a glory reserved for you. You haven't missed out on God. Would that happen for everybody who comes into this branches community, who's placed their faith in you? They, They may not know it all. They may feel insecure. I'm not doing this right. I'm not doing that right. The parable of the wedding banquet. You called in the good as well as the bad didn't have to do with what they were able to accomplish. It had to do with your goodness and your grace and your desire to see heaven filled. So Lord, with those who are unworthy of it, all of us be made worthy by your grace. Would all of us feel secure and included among your people 
God, we pray that we'd be grounded in the truth. We'd stand firm and we'd hold fast to the truth, that all of us would grow up, whether we've been walking with you for one week or 50 years, that we'd all grow ever more attuned to your voice. You're our shepherd, our personal shepherd. We don't need to go through anybody to get to you. You've spoken directly to us, God, through your word, by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, help us to know your voice. Help us to remind those around us of the truth because we can forget and end up on shaky ground yet again. So let us hold fast and stand firm and let us be filled with the strength, the eternal encouragement that you provide. God, we all hit our limits. There are some in this room who've hit their limit in their work life. They've hit their limit in their marriage. They've hit their limit in their grief in their loneliness, in their addiction. They've hit their limit, God. God, you accept those who are limited people. And you invite us to rely on the encouragement and strength that you give that's without beginning and without end. You give us that eternal vision, not just a vision for, oh, I'm going to have a good day tomorrow, a vision that's strong enough to be for eternity. That's what you put in front of us. So infuse that directly from your lips to our hearts that we would know it and experience it and receive it for ourselves until we share in your glory. Give us a taste, God, of that experience this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.